The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Morning, we're going to read from Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. So again, Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. If I could get you to stand while we read the word. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither should they learn war against any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, Today we'll be kicking off our five-week Advent series in Isaiah. And today is also the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which means it's Christmas tree weekend. Unless you hate Christmas. Um, This will come as no shock to anyone who has been in our house, but I absolutely love Christmas decorations. I'm the guy that you'll see willingly going into Hobby Lobby. I specifically love putting up our tree. And growing up, my family and I had this fake tree that we held on to for decades. It was super frustrating to put this thing together. None of the branches had those labels on them that told you where they were supposed to go. Worse, most of the branches were entirely see-through, so it was kind of an unrewarding task once you figured out how to solve this puzzle. But my family was always into doing it, including how to perfectly fluff the branches, as my dad would always say, to cover the holes. So this was just an awesome bonding experience for us. Jenna and I have a tree now, and it's a little too easy. All the branch labels are still intact. The branches are flawless and minimal fluffing is required, but it's still one of my favorite traditions, and it's always made me happy. Until Christmas two years ago, a weird thing happened. When putting up the tree, have any of you ever had to stop and think, what am I doing here? What's the point? Like not just on March 1st when you decide it's finally time to take the decorations down, but while actually putting them up. This happened to me, and it was just this super empty feeling. Like, here's this one amazing tradition, year after year, that I can count on. I can rely on it to make me happy, and then it just feels empty. And maybe it's not a Christmas tree for you. Maybe it's just the weather or the days getting shorter and darker. And it just makes us cynical. But I think this feeling of now what is pretty common, especially at this time of the year. If you felt that before, hang on to the feeling, as we're going to circle back to it. Our passage today will draw attention out of these empty feelings and instead to focus on the light of Christ's growing reign, and I pray we can learn to walk in it. 
Lord, thank you for our time this morning and for your scripture. I pray you open our eyes to this vision from Isaiah and our ears to only hear your word. Help us clear our minds from busy thoughts and see only you, your light, and your glory. Before we dive into the scripture, we're going to touch on some of the background of Isaiah. There's some historical context that's necessary for us to fully appreciate this scripture. Isaiah tells us that he wrote in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in chapter 1, verse 1. And my eyes tend to skip over details like these. It's kind of similar to the introductions in some of Paul's letters. But what do we learn from it? The lineage of these kings dates Isaiah to nearly eight centuries before Christ. We don't know much about his personal life, but he, we know he was a prophet, and his conversing with kings likely meant that he was nobility. Isaiah says that Ju- Jerusalem and Judah, previously a branch of Israel, are the audience. And under the first king, King Uzziah, the kingdom of Judah had a prosperous golden age, but it was entirely circumstantial, not from Judah's doing. Imagine with me the map of the area. Judah was protected on the west from the Mediterranean Sea, and the east from the Dead Sea, south was Egypt, and north was Israel, neither of which were threats. But north of Israel was Assyria, a looming threat, but in the distance as they were battling their northern neighbors. So all of this gives Judah this false sense of security and ultimately led to a self-reliance instead of relying on God during Uzziah's reign. In chapter 1, Isaiah describes some of Judah's sin in detail. Let me read a portion. From verse 21, he says, How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Shortly before Uzziah's death, this false sense of security begins to get exposed. A new Assyrian ruler had come to power, and he was quickly taking over and gaining support from some nations and taxes from those he conquered. And it was clear that Assyria was making a path directly towards Judah. And the kings following Uzziah tried to lead Judah through decades of war, but were ultimately unsuccessful. Despite Isaiah's constant counseling to stand firm and trust in the Lord, the next king, King Ahaz, becomes afraid of Assyria and essentially sells out for their protection. In doing so, Judah began getting taxed heavily, Assyria imposed their gods upon Judah, and their land was taken shortly thereafter. Judah was crumbling. And these are the people that Isaiah writes to in our text today. Now, if your mind wandered off, stay with me here. I imagine this feels strange and unrelatable. It did for me. But I think there's two things to note from this context. First is the danger of prosperity. Money isn't bad, but it leads to self-reliance. How quickly we can forget God when things are temporarily going well. Judah demonstrated this fact as they strayed from God and their prosperity. And second, on the opposite end of the spectrum, where do we turn when things are going poorly? Do we doubt? What were the people thinking? What were the people of Judah thinking as in the midst of war, specifically a war that was not going their way? And for those that had remained the slightest bit faithful through different kings imposing different beliefs, what did they think of God, the true God, 
when they were overruled by others who claimed to have better gods. Christian, wherever we find ourselves in this spectrum, in prosperity or turmoil, pray we'd fix our eyes only on Jesus and have wisdom to see him as sufficient Lord in all circumstances. Let's dive into the text. Verse 1 starts, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoth, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This heading parallels Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, and what it does is indicates that a new section of the text has begun. It highlights that Judah and Jerusalem are still the target audience for this message of peace and joy, despite being the same Judah that Isaiah personified as a whore with regards to their relationship with God in chapter 1. And one thing that might sound confusing in this verse, Isaiah mentions that he saw the word. However, in chapter 1, he describes his writings as a vision that he saw. Both word and vision are synonymous here. It indicates that what follows is a message directly from God. Now moving into verse 2, we begin to see this vision with Isaiah. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. So here we learn that Isaiah is not talking about his lifetime, but the latter days. And this further sets the writing apart from chapter 1, where Isaiah was describing the state of Judah in 800 BC. But what are the latter days? The latter days or the last days is specific language used throughout the Old Testament prophecies, and it typically points to a, a moment in history when all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing come to fruition. We see one example of last days in Acts chapter 2, where Peter preaches that the Holy Spirit descending on believers at Pentecost fulfills this last day's prophecy from Joel. It says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So we have a sense of the timing, but what does Isaiah actually say will happen? Here he describes Mount Zion in Jerusalem, otherwise known as the mountain of the house of the Lord. And he says it shall be established as the highest of the mountains and lifted up above the hills. How cool is this imagery? You can almost see a hand grabbing and lifting up this mountain up above the hills. You can hear the earth trembling as the house of the Lord at the peak stretches further and further into the clouds. And some of you might be thinking, all right, it's beautiful, but why? Why not plainly state that God is supreme? Why mountains? And I think there's a few reasons. One is that there's some universal awe at the grandeur of God's creation in mountains. And how much more special are they to us who live in Plainfield, Illinois? I was born in Illinois, <coughs> and I, we didn't travel much growing up. But I remember, and I will always remember, my first time I actually saw a mountain. My brother surprised me with a Denver trip in college right before finals. He was driving us from our airport to our lodge after a midnight flight. And even though I was exhausted, I could do nothing but keep my eyes glued to the windshield, just looking at the endless moonlit mountains. I was completely speechless. And then, the next day, we went up them in the daylight in all of their glory. And at the very top, before we started snowboarding, I remember sitting down in the snow and I started buckling in, but I stopped and looked around me. I was just trying to take it all in, but you can't. You can see forever. And even with the people around me, 
This was the most peaceful setting I'd ever been in. The snow absorbs all of the sound except for the wind rustling through the trees. I sat there forgetting college, my exams, the fact that I was completely unprepared and my coat wasn't warm enough, that my bank account was down to literally double digits in, or in order to rent my snowboard equipment. It was so peaceful. And how can you not realize God's power when looking at his artwork? Paul makes this point clear in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks of those who haven't heard of God or of those who have but who deny him. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God, open our eyes to see you. A second reason for mountains is their context in Isaiah's time. Historically, mountains were thought to connect heaven and earth. You often hear of heaven being up in the sky. And think back to the Tower of Babel, why build so high? Earlier, we had talked about the surrounding nations that pursued Judah and Israel. And these nations had universally set up their pagan temples on top of mountains, including the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem and Mount Zion. And furthermore, these mountains were way taller than Zion, four or five times its height. And yet, our God doesn't pick the biggest mountain to rain down over us like some would expect. No, he chooses lowly Zion to raise up. How much more does this demonstrate his glory and his power? How much clearer could it be that he is the true king? And is this use of a mountain with unimpressive appearance surprising when we think of our king? the king that would come down to human level, the one that spoke the world into existence, all while knowing the life that he would need to live and die in order to redeem us. And the third point behind the mountains is possibly the pinnacle itself. Mountains come to a single highest peak. Their breadth is enormous, it's difficult to define, but anyone who has seen a mountain knows that our eyes are inevitably drawn up to the peak. In the imagery of this hand reaching down, it's pulling up at one specific point which raises higher and higher. It's a focal point that can be seen from every side, every location on this mountain. And that focal point leads us into verse 3. All the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah's imagery continues. All the nations shall flow to it. This lowly hill that was brought up into the clouds surprises us once again. He says, flowing. Flowing usually happens from top down, but now the mountain's up in the clouds. So now there's a supernatural magnetism that breaks the way we think this world works, and suddenly we're flowing up. And despite all the contrary worldviews that we have, the way we naturally elevate ourselves, and we place constraints on God, God says, no, watch. And he graciously pulls his people up to him while they were dead in their sin. Think how crazy this is. First, in the context of historical Judah, that God would rescue his people and bring them up to him after chapter one lists in detail all the ways that Judah had sinned. Isaiah says that they had forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel. They were compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, 
They had chosen other gods to worship and were described as a whore who had broken their covenant with God, every single sin committed like breaking a marriage. These same people now were invited by God and excitedly climbing a mountain to learn God's ways. What does that mean for us? But not just God's people, no. All the nations, many people. Isaiah doesn't just say, Judah shall flow to it. Everyone. Someone might ask, even the ones who built these temples to false gods on higher mountains? Yes. Even the Assyrians who had conquered Israel and Judah? Yes. The previously hostile nations that couldn't possibly have gotten along before now press forward shoulder to shoulder with Judah towards the same goal. This is a welcome that extends beyond bloodlines, and adoption is offered to all who believe. In this image of the hand pulling the mountain up, you can see that as it rises, all of the surrounding land comes up into it and with it. The surrounding people pulled in. As it rises, the surrounding mountains are altered, first becoming dwarfed in height by Mount Zion's growth, and second, they're drawn into it, they become part of it. That they were no match for God becomes part of his glory. And this should make us want to long for, labor for, and pray for people of other nations and cultures to come to Christ. One other thing we see here is that though God draws, we still have a responsibility to climb. I want to be clear, it's not by our works that we are saved, it is by Christ's. We cannot flow up a mountain, no matter how hard we try. However, the life that is associated with knowing Jesus and is akin to climbing a mountain in some ways. This is a life that has challenges, a life of leaving earthly things behind and not looking back. Yet, in verse 3, we see all these nations are excitedly going up the largest mountain ever, people side by side encouraging each other, come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord. I love that you can hear the excitement and eagerness in their voices. Have any of you tried to climb a mountain before? <laughs> Let alone the largest mountain. Growing up in Crystal Lake, we had this infamous sledding hill at Veterans Acres. In the first big snow of the year, my brother, sister, and I would beg my parents to take us. And we'd get there, and we'd sled down the hill the first time, and we'd turn around, and we'd sprint right back up. After the second and the third trip, we'd be a little slower. We'd have to take the stairs off to the side. And after the fifth trip, my parents were wondering why they bothered taking us, because we'd be wanting to go home for hot cocoa. I ended up Googling the height of Veterans Acres Hill and discovered it was only 49 feet. <laughs> after Jenna and I got married, I tried to climb an actual mountain. My post-wedding bachelor party was at Yosemite. Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> We signed up for a lottery to climb the truly infamous Half Dome. This is a 15-mile round trip, 4,800-foot elevation gain, and it ends with something called the cables. It's a 400-foot pair of cables that help you climb up this 45-degree incline. On their website, they offer encouragement for those who are scared. They say, since 1919, relatively few people have fallen and died on the cables. <laughs> Fortunately, we did not win the lottery to climb Half Dome. <laughs> because we missed the lottery, my brother, two friends, and I set out on a slightly shorter hike. This, was, this one was only 12 miles. We made it about halfway and had a call today after we qu quickly realized we were unprepared. 
Apparently, one backpack full of Cliff Bars, Trail Mix, and literally four water bottles wasn't enough. When I look back on the Yosemite trip, and even on my sledding trips, I made it much further than I would have had I been alone. I honestly couldn't have figured out how to get back to the car at Yosemite. I was thankfully surrounded by my best friends, and from Isaiah's texts, we gathered that the Christian walk is similar. Many peoples, Isaiah says, encouraging each other. Come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord. Christian, are you surrounded by those who support you and encourage you in your walk with the Lord? Do you do the same for others? And to be clear, I'm not talking about friends who are easygoing and tolerate a lukewarm relationship with Christ. Those are perhaps the most dangerous to our walk. No, friends who hold you accountable, who push you to study God's word so that you may learn his ways and walk his paths. Friends who push you to abandon your previous life, not looking back like Lot's wife, but instead to only look forward, to climb. Community is required in this walk. As iron sharpens iron is not just a cheesy men's group slogan, but it's something we need to embrace. If God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how much more do we need close friends, our life groups, and our church to climb this mountain? Getting back to the word, why are they climbing? Because at the top, at the peak, sits the focal point, Christ shining in his glory, our Savior, our reason to sing for peace and joy in all seasons. In the words of Spurgeon, who borrows from Revelation 21, at the top of this mountain is not everlasting snows, but a pure crystal tableland crowned with a gorgeous city, the metropolis of God, the royal palace of Jesus the King. The sun is eclipsed by the light which shines from the top of this mountain. The moon ceases from her brightness, for now there is no night, but this one hill lifted up on high illuminates the atmosphere, and the nations of them that are saved are walking in the light thereof. Jesus, fix our eyes on you. Looking now at verse 4, we see a world where all bow down to Christ as king. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Can you take that in? I think it's tough for us to fully appreciate this piece. Relatively speaking, most of us are well off. We're not typically concerned about swords and spears in America. Most of us are on the relatively prosperous side of the spectrum that I warned of at the beginning, and we tend to ignore the wars outside of our country. But remember Judah when thinking about the peace that's described here. Judah's literal home was under fire, and yet Isaiah says, now not only will they walk side by side with their enemy, but you can envision this Assyrian handing over their spear to a Judean, and then them working together to beat it into a piece of farming equipment. Maybe more current, a Russian soldier handing over their gun to a Ukrainian. Worldwide dismantling of armies, missiles, nuclear weapons, and ultimately this is just a foretaste of the promised peace. But what's the actual cause of this peace? All of those flowing towards Christ are no longer enslaved to sin. If an argument comes up, God has final say, and both sides, walking to the same peak, listen to it and respect his word. The people may have started their journey up the mountain, still cautious, carrying weapons just in case 
but in time, these become extra and unnecessary weight. The weapons aren't of any use, and it's clear that they won't become any. There's no point now in practicing or learning war. And you can envision that same peace in our relationships and our marriages if we walk to the same peak. But we must submit to God first before this can happen. And at this point, you might be wondering, okay, but Jesus came, and I don't see this peace. And we're in the latter days, aren't we? It's after Pentecost. So where is it? And what do we do from here? And I say that because those were my thoughts. This really started to convict me as I was preparing the study. I realized I wasn't excited about what I was reading. I got to this point of painting this future with Christ as Lord to all, Zion raised up over all, but found myself asking, okay, now what? And although I believed Isaiah's words were true, it's like they were too good to be true. Like, yeah, that's going to be great, but it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. It's been 2,000 years. So I daydream about it. I've got real things to do, real things to think about, right? It was kind of similar to that Christmas tree feeling. And in the end, I found that Isaiah ends verse 5 with the most important call to action and the answer to the question of now what. He says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Do you see what's happened here? In verses 2 through 4, we have this prophecy over a hazy timeline. Isaiah is talking about the latter days, and we discussed how the latter days points to Pentecost 2,000 years ago. But it can't possibly end at Pentecost because we don't have this peace yet. But in here, in verse 5, he reels back. He stops describing this vision, and now he gives direct action to historical Judah. Judah, he says, knowing this future, walk in the light of the Lord now, today. Why? Because this prophecy was God's plan at the beginning, now, and in the future. When you have temporary doubts, look back and see all the times that it has been in action. It always has been. And Judah was part of it just like we are. This prophecy doesn't highlight a specific time, but a specific Savior whose plan has always been unfolding, the workings of it always being fulfilled. So when we step back, we see we're in the midst of this prophecy, it's not some distant future. It is already, but not yet. What do I mean? Stepping back, we see Judah, Jerusalem, and Mount Zion, God's chosen people, were small. They had a history of slavery, and during Isaiah's writings, death was knocking at their door. From the outside, their land was being taken away, and they were re-entering a life of physical slavery. From the inside, they were rotting and disobeying God's law. They were in spiritual slavery. And after centuries of disobeying, do you remember what happens? It goes quiet for 400 years. How could this be God's chosen people? How could Mount Zion be the house of the one God? How could his people still have hope? And yet God said, I will establish my house in Jerusalem. And he does. He sends Christ. And Mount Zion begins to grow. The prophecy is being fulfilled already, but not yet. And as it grows, people start trickling in. They're not flowing yet, but trickling upward. We think of the Magi on Christ's birth. After 400 years of silence, they did not forget God's promises, and they were led by the light of a bright star to Christ, bringing gifts. Already, but not yet. 
because then Jesus' disciples were called. Some called directly by Jesus, others by their friends who first saw Jesus and then said, come and see. And we see the beginnings of Isaiah 2, verse 3 unfolding as they encourage each other. Come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And dripping becomes trickling. And Jesus lives his life, his perfect sinless life, healing and bringing life to others, pulling the top of Mount Zion higher and higher as more and more people follow and flow to him. Already, but not yet. Because then he is crucified outside of Zion, crucified by those he came to save. And again, we hear the question, how could this be the house of the one God? Can you imagine the quiet now? The silence that existed for the 400 years before he was born couldn't compare to those days that followed his death. But then he rose. Then he rose, and with him, the peak of Mount Zion <laughs> screams towards the sky. His work was finished, but not yet, because he rose again, this time to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, now to 120 believers of Christ, likely sitting in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And we're back to the latter days described in Acts. And then what happens? Peter preaches to a crowd of thousands of people, people who first were listening because they thought that Christ's followers were drunk after speaking in tongues. But by the end of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, it says that 3,000 believed, 3,000 in a single day, people who first laughed at Christ's followers, now began flowing to the ever-growing peak of Mount Zion. And a part of Isaiah 2, verse 3, that I had previously skipped over is perfectly fulfilled. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And from those 3,000 people evermore, we find ourselves sitting in this church, part of the flow to Christ, part of the all nations and the many peoples that Isaiah described. And Mount Zion continues to grow, but it's not done yet. Because we know that Christ will return, and he will be the light brighter than the sun when the true Mount Zion will shine in its full glory. So we get back to this question of so what? And Isaiah gives us the answer. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord to the ever-growing top of Mount Zion towards the light that has pierced the chaos of history. And look around, and you will see this light. The church is the one place where peoples who were once hostile towards each other forgive atrocities, build bridges, and emerge as something new altogether. We are brothers and sisters in an unbreakable family. And true, it's not widely seen by the world yet, but it is already unfolding, and the reality will grow with the mountain. And as for the not yet peace, the peace that can feel the emptiest as we mourn that most of the world is not experiencing this reality, that's where it comes down to us. How will we, we respond to this promised trajectory? And for one, we need to pray that God transforms our lives to love his plan. If we don't, then where are we placing our hope? In our works, our finances, our good deeds? In the routines and the traditions that make us feel good, like my Christmas tree? I think you'll find many people do things like this, especially around Christmas. When we sing Christmas songs of joy to the world and peace on earth, do we have a clear image of what we're singing? Or do we just enjoy the melody briefly and then the feeling fades away? 
when we see people overspending on gifts, what are they hoping for? And I'm not trying to say that holidays and tradition are bad, but I am saying that we need to be talking with God enough and reading his word enough to know his plans. My lack of excitement when reading this passage at first indicated that I did not. So pray that we trust him and that we aren't discouraged by however distant this future may seem, but instead that we'd be encouraged knowing the peace that is promised. And yes, it's been 2,000 years of waiting for the peace that Isaiah describes, but do not lose hope. Our struggle to trust in this promise isn't new. Peter speaks of it in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So pray for faith like the Magi who walked towards the light after silence. Pray for faith like the disciples who followed still after Jesus' death. Pray that we look forward to the day of the Lord and the final Mount Zion. And to end, I recently saw Adam Vega share a message. He said, I started to truly love preaching after the Lord showed me that church Behold your king is a perfectly acceptable and maybe the best main sermon point and application. Therefore, church, behold your king. Walk in the light of his growing reign. Above all, remember that walking in the light of Christ is what precedes this peace and this hope. And remember that this walk takes effort and the help of close friends and community is essential. Encourage each other as we walk up Mount Zion. Pray that the bright light of God's growing mountain illuminates the path of your life, exposing any darkness, and draws you upwards to the coming permanent reality. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this promise of peace and for always being faithful to your promises. Lord, help us long for the day that Zion is complete and that your light shines above all. Until that day, help us see your light in this world today. We know that you're constantly working, and help us see that, and not to get distracted by temporary things in this world. I pray you draw us towards you, and that this vision with you as king over all is the guiding force in everything we do and say.